Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today's podcast is a bit of a reunion with two friends and investors, Parker Thompson and Eric Torenberg. This isn't the first time we've recorded together. Back in 2015, Eric and I recorded an episode with Silicon Valley's favorite and most mysterious Twitter personality, Startup L. Jackson. Little did people know, Startup L. Jackson was, or is, Parker, until his grand reveal a year later. Parker today is now a partner at AngelList, an early stage investor himself. And prior to joining the family here, he was an investor at 500 Startups, where he invested in Eric's first company, among many others. Eric is a former teammate of mine and the co-founder and partner at Village Global, a new $100 million early stage fund. He's also the co-founder of On Deck and Token Daily, and one of the best community builders I know. On the show, we chat about new business opportunities that emerge from platform shifts, how investors choose which companies to bet on, and if crypto could be Facebook's biggest threat. But before I jump in, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. We'd like to thank Airtable for making the show possible. I've been talking with a diverse mix of companies that use Airtable to build their business, including Ryan Delk, COO at Omni. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Tell me more about Omni. What's Omni and, and what do you do? We're building the future of how people will own and access things. I know you're an Airtable user. Can you talk about how you use Airtable at Omni? Yeah. The better question is how don't we use Airtable at Omni? Basically, every single team at Omni is using it every day in some capacity. We use it on everything from the product and growth team to manage feedback from users, to do surveys, to gather data, all the way to on the ops side to manage how people are performing. We have an API that takes all the compliments that people get about their performance as a concierge, pipes those into Airtable, allows us to do analysis, and then automatically actually built a system that kind of displays those and emails those to the concierge so they can know when they're getting positive feedback. You can get $50 in free credit by visiting Airtable.com slash product hunt. We're happy to have Intercom as a sponsor of the show, a tool we've used at Product Hunt since the beginning. Once upon a time, when Product Hunt first started, I would monitor our Intercom dashboard to see who was signing up and visiting the site in real time. It was super fun to see the diversity of people across the world joining every single day. As people signed up, I reached out one by one, introducing myself in hopes to create a memorable first impression. Intercom made this easy to do with its in-app messaging, and while this isn't the most scalable strategy, people responded very positively. It helped really create a memorable impression and helped build that early community. Today, we use Intercom at a much bigger scale, answering questions and reaching out to people for feedback as we're building and launching new features. So if you're building a community or really any product with users, you can do this too. Check out intercom.com. Hey everybody, this is Ryan Hoover with Product Hunt Radio. I'm here with two friends, Eric and Parker. How's it going, guys? It's, awesome. uh, it's great to be here. I just want to say that this is the second time we've all done a podcast together. The <laughs> first true. time was under the auspices of Startable Jackson when we dubbed Parker's voice. That's that was, right. I did that from a broom closet. I think I sat in your <laughs> closet in your old office. That was good. That was that was quite an episode. Yeah, you were literally in a broom closet. He's not exaggerating. And and then we did some post-production work to yeah. augment his voice. Yeah. Listen to that episode and listen to this one. The voice is uh, something special. It was fun. After that episode, too, I had a bunch of people. This is super inside baseball, by the way. <laughs> but I had a bunch of people message me like, who is Startup yeah, Jackson? Yeah, so special. Yeah. I remember Sarah Bird DM'd me and she's like, it's Parker Conrad. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like different Parker. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but Eric, introduce yourself. What's, yes. What are you up to nowadays? I'm an entrepreneur and investor. I'm co-founder of a venture firm called Village Global and also a co-founder of a crypto company called Token Daily. Nice. And Parker, what do you do here at AngelList? I sit on the investment committee for AngelList. So we look at about a thousand companies a year, invest in a couple hundred on behalf of the community. So that takes up a little bit of my time. And then I spend the rest of my time out there in the world doing actual uh, seed investing the normal way. So get to see it on the ground level and then from a thousand foot view. Nice. And you're at 500. Was it right before you joined AngelList? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. where I was before. So that's where nice. I learned seed investing, ran the accelerator there and, you know, had no business being an investor, but, you know, knew somebody as it as it happens. And so got to got to learn on my feet there. Nice. And you actually invested, if I'm not mistaken, through 500 startups in Eric's company. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. From way uh, back we, in the day. We did do that as a rap company. Yes. I'm not I'm not much of a consumer guy, uh, but I did invest in a rap company. And, and that's actually how I got here from Detroit to San Francisco. So I'm immensely grateful for Parker. Still waiting for my return on yes. that, but you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long, long, it's a, you know, it's a long game. The friendship <laughs> dividend is yes, good. Absolutely. Yeah, Rept.fm is is how we met sort of indirectly, Eric yeah. and, and myself. I had a buddy, my, my friend Kelly would, for those that don't know, actually rapped, rapped yeah, sure. why don't you explain what it was? Yeah, sure. It's sort of like, imagine like a Skype or chat roulette for rap battles, where live video, you could freestyle rap with anyone in the world, and a live audience could watch, chat, and vote for who they like best. Yeah, so I, and my buddy Kelly, he in the office every now and then. I hope he's okay with me sharing this. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like 5 p.m. and he'll be in a conference room and I'll see him talking to the computer and I'll be like, what is he doing? And he's on wrapped FM, just rapping with people around the world. <laughs> and at one point he, he would wear like different costumes. Like he wore a panda suit. The next day he wore a different costume. And I was like, <laughs> man, this site is going to blow up. Like there's so much viral <laughs> content that's being created here. Yeah. It was special. It was, it was, yeah, we need to bring it back. Yeah. That, Hopefully they'll be reimagining. That's, that's my long game. Or, or request for product. Anyone who's uh, listening right now, yeah, VC has just a we- always been a wedge into the rap game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're all we're all doing some investing. All of us, I guess, in the earlier stages, primarily. What spaces are you excited about, or what are you looking at? What trends are you seeing? What can you share? Let's talk about crypto first, because me and Parker talk, talk a lot. And about everybody it. drink <laughs> <laughs> and think a lot about it. You know, there's this post I read recently by Danny Grant, who's an analyst at USV, super super smart. Check this post out. It's called "The New New Thing Versus the New Old Thing," and basically talks about how every time there's a platform shift, you sort of have you know two different types of companies being built on the new platform. New old things that you know you take legacy product and add internet to it. So if you like Casper, Bed plus internet, Coursera, you know, education plus internet. And then you have the new, new thing, things that could only be created because of the new platform. So on the internet, it's like eBay or PayPal or Napster, things that sort of didn't exist in that form. And there's some overlap and some some things are novel. What, What she says there is that in the beginning of a new platform, everyone tries to retrofit onto the last platform and build new old things because mm-hmm. it's what they're familiar with it's yeah. more obvious maybe but that typically the new platform is not ready for it yet. uh you know, there's not enough user adoption the experience is not good enough the infrastructure is not there and so when new platforms come what tends to work out is the new new things and then 15 25 years later you'll see the new old things emerge out and so if you look at the internet it's sort of cliche at this point but you have you know webvan pets.com a lot of these things that seem you know new old thing and seem silly at the time 15 years later you finally have the distribution the infrastructure to be able to to do that and now you're seeing with crypto a lot of new new old things just legacy product add token add add crypto and so i'm really interested in sort of what are the to the extent that we accept this framework, what are the new, new things that are that are enabled by crypto? And if I think what sort of crypto uniquely enables is things that, one, have sort of digital scarcity 
to them and, and two have sort of really value censorship resistance. Um, and so on the censorship resistance side, things like money, <laughs> things yeah. like prediction markets and the digital scarcity side, things like NFTs, you know, looking for things that are, you know, newly enabled by it. Parker, how does that land yeah. on you? Yeah. You know, I think just like as a macro point, I think often we're too quick to extrapolate patterns like the new new versus the new old. And and with respect to crypto, I think, you know, I'm old enough to remember when coming out of the 90s, you know, the lesson we all learned was that open was obviously always going to win, right? And, you know, so that's how we built Web 2.0. Like, we were building these, you know, these open standards, RDF, FOF was like the friend of a friend, XML standard for distributing social graph data. And like that just seemed obvious in maybe 2002, 2003, 2004, because the lesson that we had learned and we all knew to be true was that the internet was open, right? Or that open, open was the obvious superior thing. And then Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth came along, even in, you know, Google Reader was all built on open standards, and we thought that's going to be the way that it was. So now we're coming back and saying, well, actually, we were right then. And to me, it's still not obvious, right? I think that, like, it's not that open or closed is better or that, you know, we've learned these lessons and they're truisms. Like, we're still in the second inning. And it's probably the case that, you know, these lessons are applicable to certain patterns or markets, and other ones are going to be informative other places. So... I don't, I don't know if we can say like, oh, we're in the pets.com phase. Like maybe that's true. I mean, one of the things that I'm most excited about in crypto is stable coins and like everybody's excited about it. There's like a new project every day, right? So that, not that that's like a unique um, insight. You could argue that's a new old thing, right? Like it's dollars. <laughs> I mean, that's not new, right? There's something like 60 plus countries in the world that peg their currency to the dollar, right? Like getting dollars to Argentina is the old thing, but it turns out that like they don't want Bitcoin. Bitcoin kind of sucks, you know? <laughs> like the price changes all the time. It's really expensive to use. It just kind of sucks. They just want dollars. So like let's give them a PayPal, right? Like yeah. so I I think that framework's interesting. I but I think a better way of thinking about these things is to ask the question, just does this make sense? And so you can put you can sort of load that theory into memory, apply it to this thing decide whether it's applicable or not and discard it. And maybe there's a different theory that's more useful for certain kinds of uh, analyzing certain businesses. So there is a lot of negativity, especially now around some of the big players like Facebook and some of the things that have uh, kind of occurred as a result of the platform. And and of course, Twitter has its own issues. Do you think this is going to take a, ask a broad question. Do you think Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Amazon, Google, do you think Overall, it's good that we have those platforms, and it's good that we have these dominant leaders. Parker has a lot of great thoughts on Facebook. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, there's sort of a – you can look at it in terms of the economics and then the social impact, right? And those are maybe different things. Like from an economic perspective, the scale of these things makes sense, right? There there are arguably natural monopolies in a lot of these areas, and then those have these – negative social externalities, right? Well, and, and one illustration of that is imagine if, if we had 20 different Facebooks in the U.S. just alone and everyone was on a different Facebook. It'd be hard to actually have a network and communicate across different networks. Ultimately. Yeah, maybe. I mean, how many you know social apps do you have on your phone, chat apps, whatever, right? Like, I don't know that it would necessarily be that much worse, but it just is the case that like Facebook won because it was the best, right? Like it just was, and that's why everybody used it. So the social problem is that 
Facebook is our newspaper, and I guess from my perspective, it's a very amoral organization. They're not evil. They're just not good. And so a byproduct of them being this amoral organization that aggregates all the eyeballs is the decisions that they make have social impact. I would I would argue that they're relatively bad. You could take a different position on that. So I guess where I come down is, you know, we probably need to do something. These things are probably bad in some ways. I'm less personally excited about the privacy things that get other people angry. So that, in my opinion, is an economics question. And I think the market has spoken. People want more services at the expense of what you might say is privacy. But we need to figure out what to do with these things from a regulatory perspective. And I, I, I think it's not obvious. I think anybody who's like, I know the answer and it's obvious and we just need to go and break them up or do this or that is just they just aren't thinking hard enough about it. When people use the word amoral, it sort of has a negative connotation in the sense of, you know, people you should have morals. Do you, do you mean it in the sense of they should be taking more of an explicit? Well, look, this is good. This is um, bad. I sort of look at Facebook and I pick on Facebook. I mean, they're not not the only one. These platforms have different roles in this sort of this propaganda economy, if you want to call it that. <laughs> when I say immoral, the, the, the positive way of saying it might be that they're humble, right? When you hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about it, I think he would characterize their behavior as, as trying to be humble, right? They don't want to bear the burden of deciding what truth is. And that's fair, right? Like, dude built a social network to get girls in college, like he didn't sign up to be, you know, the truth police, right? Yeah but he is, <laughs> right? So there's this guy, Kevin Ruse from New York Times, yep. you know this guy? Mm-hmm. He's been doing this thing I think is kind of fun where every day he kind of posts like, here are the top 10 news outlets, in, I use news in quotes, on political topic of the day, right? And it's like Fox, Fox, Bill O'Reilly, Daily Caller, Fox, CNN, you know, like there's like a, C- a CNN in there, which great that that's the, you know, that's the best you got. You know, you make choices in defaults, right? Like these algorithms are choices. So when you try to not pick winners, you're still picking winners, right? So when I say amoral, I think it's more useful to think about it that way than it is to say, hey, they're evil, even if you believe that the product, the result is very negative, right? Like they're not a bunch of evil people in Menlo Park. They're just people trying to do the best they can. It's yeah. it's kind of, I feel like it's a lose-lose to some extent there. No matter how, what you do and what decisions you make, I think is a big company at a certain scale, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to make trade-offs. And I, I don't know if there's actually reality where Facebook can uh, appeal to everybody and, and everyone's political perspective, or not necessarily political, but just the, the decisions. Everyone has a different perspective on how Facebook should be run. <laughs> the same way that politics and government, everyone has a different perspective on how that should be run. Yeah, well. well, this is why Mark Zuckerberg makes the big bucks, right? Like, you got to make choices. I mean, from my perspective, and we don't have to, you know, we could spend hours talking about this, but I'll make this plug, right, is... I think we've solved this problem in the past, right? Like if you look at the way that actual journalistic organizations run, right, there's actually a well-articulated ethical framework, right? If you go talk to journalists, right, journalists operate in a certain way. There's a set of norms and not all media is journalism, but journalism is a phenomenal um, institution. It's very important to our society, right? And to some extent, these platforms that have aggregated the eyeballs have replaced the role of these um, newspapers in, in practice in terms of being the last mile of information delivery, right? So from my perspective, it's not that they need to pick political winners, right? And that's not necessarily what newspapers do, de- debatable. 
But there needs to be some analogous ethical framework that these organizations apply to themselves because in the absence of that, you just just have nihilism, right? Like you just have this these amoral organizations that sort of like are being shaped by forces outside of them who are like, great, you build the algorithm however you want and we'll make it do what we want it to do. Yeah. So the solution then is crypto, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, seriously, uh, when it comes to, I think, crypto and social networks or social networking in general, I think it's a super interesting space. We see a bunch of different projects like Leroy is kind of one silly example, which is a decentralized Twitter on the Ethereum blockchain. It's really janky. It's kind of terrible. Yeah. But there, there are these new, new things that we can now do on this infrastructure of crypto and blockchain that could change the incentives in the way that people interact I mean, on the social Look, network. I think there's a general principle here that's fairly clear, and, and Twitter is really the analog. Twitter tried to build this. They tried to be the telecom infrastructure, right? I remember sitting in their office when they were very small, and they're like, look, like we don't want to build the clients. We just want to build the pipes. And I was like, you guys are crazy. That's just a crazy idea. And if you talk to them now, what they'll tell you is, you know, the, the bad thing about that is it's really hard to move quickly in that world, right? It's really hard to iterate quickly because when you want to make a feature change, you have to sort of say like, all right, next year, we're going to add likes, right? Yeah, we're going to dep- deprecate this API, all you developers, uh, heads up. Yeah, even even in a more centralized world, going to two, 280 characters was, was slow for them, right? Because there were a lot of clients that didn't support it and whatnot. So I actually think that when you think about client level user-facing applications, right? Probably it's the case that central is just better. That's the right architecture for rapid iteration, for great user experience. And so it's probably the case, in my opinion, that crypto is not well-suited for these kinds of use cases. And you look at Twitter, you can look at, I mean, Linux, like the old joke was like, this is the year of Linux on the desktop, right? Like, what made Linux the most popular operating system in the world? Google centralizing it, right? So I'm relatively bearish on on uh, consumer crypto. Maybe wrong. I don't know. What do you think, Eric? Well, I think people often talk about it as is sort of a binary, like this is you know 100% centralized or 100% decentralized. And and I think there's a lot of room in the middle there. I think zooming out for why is really interesting. First, a lot of people I think criticize incumbents, Facebook, Amazon. It's, and they say, hey, these are the rent seekers taking way too much and we're going to build a decentralized version of it and pass on all the value to consumers. I think what they don't give enough credit to is that these products already pass on a lot to you – know, you talk about Dropbox. Like Dropbox already passes a lot of value onto consumers and that's why they have so much power because they give such a great you know user experience. I think what I'm excited about crypto networks is the opportunity to incentivize a lot more stakeholders. So the early users who contribute a lot to the platform – like the ability to give upside to a lot more people than just employees that represents the actual value they're creating onto the platform. That's one thing I'm really excited about. And the other thing I'm excited about is sort of more user choice and the ability to exit. Like I should be able to, like if I don't like Facebook, I should be able to take my friends and transport onto a fork to a different social network. Or if I don't like, you know, if I don't want to use Lyft, I should be able to take my history and, and you know, transport it somewhere somewhere else. So I'm excited about Th- those applications and i i think yeah centralized a lot better for 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 efficiency for for a lot more reasons but i think if you can you know incorporate some elements of that I, and it doesn't have to be with crypto it could be i think that's really interesting yeah so kind of along those lines we were right before recording this we were talking a little bit about remote and distributed teams and you know there's centralization of technology and then there's centralization of like teams 
I don't know. I've seen just a lot more conversation about distributed teams and those that know Product Hunt. We're pretty much entirely distributed. We have, I think it's four, maybe five people in San Francisco, but maybe half the time they're working from a coffee shop or from home. And then the other rest of the team, a uh, total of about 1920 is everywhere around the world. So that's how we've operated for like five years. Of course, there's lots of pros and cons to that, but what have you seen in the market? Are you, are you seeing, I wish I had more like real time data on this, but are you seeing more companies kind of adopt this type of structure? Are you, or is it more just like an inside baseball Silicon Valley talking to itself about how this is the new hot thing when it's really not changing? <laughs> I'm curious what you see in your, I mean, you guys have done something like 70 investments. Is yep. that? Yeah. You know? And 40% are in San Francisco. So we're doing a bunch outside uh, San Francisco. We're seeing it a lot. I think it just, you know, as, and when I was at with working with you at Product Hunt is you, you can get great people cheaper because San Francisco, it costs a lot of money to yeah. live here. It costs a lot of money to hire engineers here. California taxes. I just did my taxes. <laughs> painful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you find these pocket, like we have a Serbian entrepreneur who on like, you know, million dollars has like a team of 20 engineers in Serbia who are awesome engineers. So I think there's... But that's not even distributed. That's just remote, right? Yeah. Which is maybe right. useful to distinguish yeah. between those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. But I think we see a mix of mix of both where you can have a talent arbitrage, but then you, if you... I mean, in order to do remote well or distributed well, you need amazing communication. You need processes. You need deep trust. What I didn't see it, because Procton was the biggest we were, 25, 30... Yeah, Maybe I less. think 20, 24 might have been our peak. Yeah. So I, I wonder what that would have looked like at 100 or 150. Yeah. Because you know, we knew totally everybody, different. you trusted everybody. I haven't yet, yet you see, you know, WordPress. Like, there yeah, are examples of it. Yeah. I haven't personally experienced that. But I think at the level where we were at, I think it made a lot of sense. And, and we had, you know, Rado was in Bulgaria. Where yeah. Was, yeah. People all over Europe. Um, and we built quite a special team. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I've been very dismissive of this sort of this idea that the world is flat. I mean, this is a 20-year-old idea, The right? world isn't flat? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll, called Kyrie Irving. Still, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the jury's out, right? Look, communication is the hardest thing to scale in not, not just companies, right? This is just like, this is what Dunbar's number is, and this is just a well-understood thing, right? Like, communication is combinatorial. As you scale, you need to manage that. And putting people in physical proximity allows you to take advantage of our human biology, our pheromones and whatnot. It's just easier, right? So I've been pretty militantly uh, co-location oriented for a long time. But I'll tell you, just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen in my own portfolio, like companies that are good companies, right, that are doing well saying like, we're just done with San Francisco. And this is a very San Francisco thing, not necessarily, I mean, you might make different decisions if you're somewhere else. But if you're here, you know, the taxes are high, the people are expensive, you know, the everyday joke is about the poop on the streets. And then, you know, you go to interview engineers who have 5,000 opportunities. And so there's necessarily the entitlement is like the bad word for it. Yeah. But just like, look, if you have 50 options, you can be snooty about the particular version of Rails that you want to work on. I had a portfolio company, I have an engineer, just like, you're just not on the version of Rails that I want to use. And it's like, yeah. okay, well. Well, so I was in a private conversation, I won't mention names. Uh, someone was asking just what it, what is a comp for someone at uh, like one of the big fan companies, like a Facebook or a Google for like a VP engineering type role. And few people in that room who who would know this, they said with cash and equity, it's about three to five million dollars a year. Yeah, I've heard and one to two, but I mean that's wow. why a house in Palo Alto is is out of <laughs> yeah. control. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, so I mean, it's, I'm very interested in learning more about how you do distributed teams well because you know whether we like it or not, it seems like for San Francisco, 
it's a reality now. And I, I think actually if I were, you know, 22, it would be a lot harder to think about moving here and starting something here. So I'm very supportive of teams that like want to be other places, whether they're just somewhere else and all there or distributed or whatever. Uh, I still think I'm a little bit biased towards go somewhere and have everybody come there, but maybe, yeah. maybe I'm just an old man about that. What do you think is your big learning, Ryan? Because you've done this for five years now. What do you know now that you wish you knew then when starting a remote uh, distributed yeah. team? So there's some things that Parker touched on a couple of them that are, I think, well understood and, and recognized. Like communication is is more challenging because you can't whiteboard. We're in a room and there's a giant, beautiful whiteboard right here. It's hard to replicate that experience online. So there's things like that that are fairly obvious. The ones that people don't talk about, one in particular is loneliness, actually. I think some people, everyone has a different working style and like preference of how they want to work. Some people love, you know, working in their pajamas at home. Some people hate it. But I, I have noticed that for some people, it can feel a little bit lonely when you're by yourself and you're working alone and you don't have the day to day kind of human interaction and you don't have the opportunities to, you know, even have the serendipity of like lunch on the table outside and or Super Smash Bros in the basement. And so I think that's something that. I've kind of recognized and that's one reason why we try to do like annual offsites, which are not only important for like planning and everything, but also important to bring everyone together and like energize people. Just everyone. annual though? You didn't fly people all around? I mean, I know you guys were on a, uh, not an infinite budget, but yeah. um, once a year was enough to kind of, you know, bring people together. Yeah. For once a year for everyone on the team. Um, and this is, we didn't do it. It wasn't super strict stricter like every year we're going to do it exactly this time uh, but we have one coming up in december we're going to la and in addition to that though we have people come over it really depends on the person and their preference but some people will come over two or three times a year also in addition to that and like work for a week in, in the office and yeah every time that happens i feel i feel like people get a sense of excitement and also like reassurance that you know they are part of a team and, and we're like people and humans and we're not just you know little photos on twitter and slack <laughs> So I feel like that's a challenge. I have no idea if how we would operate as a hundred plus person company. It would dramatically change, I think, how we we operate, whether we're centralized or decent, uh, not decentralized, but you know, distributed. And so it's a whole different challenge that I haven't experienced myself. So I think Envision just had a an article written about them. There are seven hundred people, yeah. I believe, fully distributed. They might have some offices, but for the most part, they're everywhere. I feel like in a crypto world, Product Hunt, which have some tokens and envision success because they've been a Product Hunt for so, so yeah, long, for yeah. So many years. You know, we, we've we've talked about Kitty Coins is our token. We already have a name for it. Wow. Um, we don't have a use case or any technology built. You got to ship perfect this. for an ICO. <laughs> this is a billion dollar idea. I mean, Doge is uh, at what, like seven hundred million or something like that. Yeah, crazy. It is, it is insane. Stick around to the end of this episode for a mini interview with Marion Wu president of GE Ventures. We talked about how GE Ventures is investing in the future of startups. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe. The best way to know if people like your product is if they'll actually pay for it. But collecting payments on the internet is harder than you might think. Stripe makes it easy for entrepreneurs to turn their ideas into businesses by helping them accept money from anyone, anywhere in the world. So if you're building an internet company and you care about revenue, you should check out stripe.com. What's been your biggest learning as you've been investing now? Eric, you've been investing how long? Like three or four or five years? Yeah, three or four years. I think there are a few sort of 
things that, like big contradictions within VC as I've gotten into it. I think one is that everyone, one thing that everyone agrees on in, in VC is be a contrarian and, and be right. And what's sort of difficult is that if you, you know, do a pre-seed investment or a seed investment in something that other people do not see, do not want to invest in, you know, one year later, 12 months later, 18 months later, you now have to go to the same people who said, you know, there's no way I'll invest in that and convince them that, that something is different. And that's very hard to do. So a lot of people end up making, you know, being almost scouts for seed or series A firms and, you know, asking what they like and then investing in the following. That's sort of one contradiction. The other is this are idea. You, are you saying you're contrarian about the contrarian? Yeah. <laughs> meta con- yeah. Meta contrarianism <laughs> is, the, is the best way to be. I, I think the other thing I would say is that people talk about proprietary deal flow. There's a question to what extent that, that actually exists. But I think the most proprietary deal flow or the most inefficiently priced deal flow is, is the, the companies in your own portfolio. Because you, you've been working with them. You know who's real. You know who's not. And it's sort of interesting. You know, in VC, they say a lot, like, stick to your knitting. If you're a seed fund, don't need Series A checks. You know, be consistent. LPs like to see consistency. But if you've been working with a company for 12 months and you've been able to see them execute at an amazing level, and especially if it's a company that's hard to sell to Series A firms, you end up spending a ton of time educating Series A investors on, on why they should do it. And you have all this special knowledge that you don't get to profit from. In fact, they they profit from it. And so uh, I like to see, and, and we would like to do more of, doubling down in, in companies that are that are really exciting, that, that, that we think are winners. And a thing I didn't realize when I first started investing is it's it's not just a skill to you know go out there and pick winners, but it's just as much of a skill to identify the winners in your own portfolio. And I think that's something that I've learned the hard way by not <laughs> participating in companies that have been doing exceptionally yeah. well. The Hustle Fund has an interesting model uh, around this. I mean, they're investing in pre-seed super early stage companies. And they they usually, I believe, write 25K checks and they reserve the opportunity to invest 250000 later on. And they're they, it's not like an accelerator necessarily, but they operate in similar capacity in that they're working really closely with the teams over the course of several weeks. So I found that really interesting model. Yeah, I haven't seen yeah. any... Kind of other funds take that approach. I mean, they're explicitly. very early, is my understanding. Forgive me if if I'm saying this wrong, guys, but I think they'll put in your 25k and then like watch your GitHub commits and like pre-seed and try to make decisions very early. Whereas I think maybe what Eric is saying and what I've seen more is like a year later, you've seen a lot of progress and you can see it. It's obvious to you because you've been watching it for a year. And you take it to a Series A fund and they can't see it because they've been looking at it for an hour and they need to get, you know, their level of comfort is not going to be there where yours is because you've seen these people execute. And I mean, the cliche, which is right, is it is about the people. So I agree. That's a that's a great opportunity. Conviction is a comparative advantage because there's not as much of it as you would think. So if you can go and write that check and just have faith that the A is going to happen you can like I've I've done that where it's like great I'll write the check and six months later Andreessen will see it because there'll be enough data there that there maybe wasn't and it's just like on paper it's you know double the valuation obviously it's still a long way to go but if you can get half of Andreessen's price every time you're gonna do okay yeah, yeah. And you have been at 500 startups and AngelList there aren't that many people that have seen you know or done more deals than, than you have or, or been a I'm part like of the Walmart of <laughs> venture capital yeah. how, how have you thought about like doubling down or, or or follow on or just that concept that I brought up. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I like to write multiple checks before the Series A. Like I want to be done investing and have put all the money that I want to put into the company before the Series A for 
a couple of reasons, right? Like I think that that's where the prices are better. I think that's my comparative advantage in terms of both data analytics and information asymmetry, right? I just know more than the Series A folks. And they're giant, right? If you've got a billion-dollar fund, it's absolutely rational for you to look at my perfectly good company and be like, look, like we're only going to invest in one company in this space. That one seems cool, but it's not obvious that it's the one. We're just going to wait. It's like it's totally the right thing to do. You got a billion dollar fund. You should execute a strategy that's consistent with that fund size, right? So you got to operate in that market, and it, it makes sense to do it that way. The other thing I learned, and this really depends on what stage you're at, but if you're pre seed investing, I think of that as more of a B2C uh, style than if you're sort of seed or Series A investing. And what I mean by that is if you're Series A or seed investing, a lot of times there's already a company and you'll get introductions from other investors. And so you're appealing to to them as well. But if you're pre-seed investing, you're often investing before a company is even started. And so people need to go to you before they think of other people for who's going to be their first check-in. And you need to have a reason for why why they would do that. And I think I sort of, in the beginning, lucked into it by being part of product hunt, I think, thanks to Ryan, um, where people would, you know, have a product and want to feature on product hunt. And, but when I was no longer at product hunt, I was like, hmm, how come I'm not seeing as many deals? <laughs> um, especially, especially early on. And so I think being really thoughtful about having some sort of reason, and it could be sort of a vertical expertise. You're putting, you know, the best event in the space in, in the specific vertical or putting out a ton of content, like what Jason Lemkin has done with Saster, or you have some horizontal, you know, on deck was my, my way of doing it. An event yeah. series for people who are looking to start or join their next thing. Some sort of horizontal, either event series or content. But having a reason and an asset that not only brings people to you, deal flow, but also gives them a reason to want you to invest in their company. Because like you can't trust just be you a, and like you, yeah. frankly, because they, they want to work with people they like to totally. some extent. Yeah. I find pre-seed kind of pre-launch space is really interesting. What I'm personally seeing and i'd love to have more data on this there's more data around seed stage and series a investing less so pre-seed because it's also like what is pre-seed exactly well but also um, these are just variable names and like pre-seed right. like yeah. didn't exist 10 I, years I mean ago like first check in we just used to that used to be seed that yeah. was seed so I, yeah. I i disagree i think we have a lot of data we're just repurposing the variable names because like when i want to go raise my next fund i don't want to change my variable name but i want a fund that's five times as big so we invent a new category at the bottom, right? Pretty soon a Series A is going to be a $100 million round. So I, I don't know. I, di- I disagree. I, th- I think we are, like what Precede is hasn't changed that much in the last 10 to 12 years. And, you know, we can learn a lot by just looking at how it works. Yeah. Know? I think the names are kind of getting flipped around. And, and kind of where I'm getting at is the pricing of, of I'm putting Precede in quotes kind of here. <laughs> It's still sometimes like a five mil cap. And, yeah, the pricing you know, has changed. And yeah. so so that's been challenging when you, you know, could wait and you could do kind of a proper seed around yeah. similar pricing. I find that the the most, I guess, well-connected and experienced founders are still able to command such high valuations in, in the beginning. And I, I just don't want to be the person who misses a great deal because of price, but I don't want to do all these dumb deals <laughs> or, you know, at overpriced valuations. Yeah, so. I think that's yeah. the tension. I mean, I just look at these things as like every deal is about what the risk-adjusted return is. So... You know, for example, I think if you're looking at pre-seed deals, you're probably going to do a lot better with B2B businesses because they're easier to understand from first principles than consumer businesses where um, it's much easier to understand from data. So like I, I know you do a ton of consumer and I think that's a magical alchemy kind of deal. Good luck. 
Yeah. Uh, but prices don't matter, right? Because yeah. if you get them right, they're really more big. binary in some yeah. cases. So, I mean, I, I guess the biggest thing that I think about, and if, if for founders out there, the way that I think about price is actually like what's in the best interest of the company. And often when things are too highly priced, the real problem is not that I can't get a good return. It's that just you're creating a structural problem going forward where it's like, you know, if you raise money at like $1 million and a $16 million cap on a consumer product that's, you know, you got to ask yourself like, well, okay, well, what's the next round look like? Uh, Non-transact, you're not going to be making money. We all agree on that. So like... How many users do you need? How much time do you need to get those users? What does success look like here? And it's like you've created a structural problem not just because of the price, right? If you'd raised like 500K at four, you might be better off because then we'll go raise two or three million later on. So I think like, you know, you can over-obsess with financial engineering in early stage startups, but actually these decisions do matter so we're, we can bitch about it all day long as investors. Oh, the prices are too damn high, right? <laughs> but it's a problem for these companies as well that they should be thinking about. And I, I actually think a real problem with the market is like investors just don't articulate it that way to the companies. They aren't sitting down and saying like, let's actually agree on what's good for the company. Right. Because I'd way rather invest at a higher price. It's going to be less risky for the company because that's going to be better for me and for the company. And I, I feel like, you know, if I can get cranky a little bit about the investment environment, I think that there's a lot of people just, you know, spread around chips, not doing that work. And the founders aren't saying like, wait, like who's optimizing for me? And there's just, it turns out that there's no one and it's their first time. So they just don't know what to do. And, you know, like a lot of those companies can die and the investors still do well. So founder, do do your homework. Yeah, yeah. there was, there's one company fairly early stage and they were raising their first round at a 12 mil cap. And they're raising 500K. So my first like head scratcher, independent of their numbers or anything, was why are you raising such little on such a, such a yeah, high yeah, cap? Yeah. Like, you're taking on such little dilution. It's it's like negligible. And they ended up going out to market and investors basically for the for the reason of the pricing just turned them down. It was just there's too many red flags there. You know, I have this theory, and I'm gonna, you know, get the time to do this with data at some point, but I have this theory that if you do around pre-product market fit and you sell less than fifteen percent of the company, so that's kind of independent of what the price is and how much you raise, that there's a strong negative correlation with getting to the next round just based on that. I think that that really reflects two things. So this is all theory, but I think that there's there's the resources that you need to achieve a set of milestones that's going to allow you to raise a good round going forward, and you just have fewer resources. But also, I think that there are founders who are obsessed with a slice of the pie rather than the size of the pie. That is maybe an indirect way of thinking about how they think about mission versus sort of the technicalities of building a business. But I just, I think it's, it's almost always a really negative sign. Like, and not that you start out that way because you're in YC and you're looking at all the valuations and you're just like, well, I don't know, I should raise this. But when you sit down and have the conversation and somebody says, well, like, I hear your words, but, you know, screw that. I'm going to raise 500K at 10 million bucks. You're like, all mm-hmm. right, well, good luck with that. You yeah. know, I wish yeah. you well. Maybe it'll work. Yeah. I'm curious, Ryan, how you think about consumer going to Parker's earlier point, earlier skepticism, I should say, just because my first five or six yields were all consumer, you know, coming from product yeah. time. I did yeah. Islands, Tribe, Winnie, Move With, which is a consumer fitness company. And so they might be great companies, but I think, you know, I haven't done as many since because they're often so binary. I thought that, hey, maybe it makes sense to wait Series A, even Series B, that if it's, you know, if it's clearly working, you know, I can be a part of it later and still see big upside. Whereas pre-traction, even pre-product sometimes, it just seems so risky. Really. Yeah. So it comes down to, part of it is a price. So actually, Having 
like I said, on the founder side, I, I never really thought of the economics from an investor point of view. <laughs> just didn't, it just wasn't a reason to. And as now I'm doing some investing, I start to better understand like the economics and like, well, if I invest, let's say a 50K check in a 30 mil pre-money valuation company, like this has got to exit for like multiple billions of dollars for it to really matter in my tiny little $3 million fund. <laughs> and so when I think about consumer, especially at the early, early stages, like first part, price does matter. And that's one component. What I look for though, or what I get really excited about is not necessarily someone who's going to say, we're going to build the next Facebook and we're going to basically build it on mobile and it's going to be like better mobile Facebook. And you're like, well, what's changed that allows you to do that? What's like your unique competitive advantage or what's changed in the market with behaviors or platforms that enable you to do that? And there's one company that kind of illustrates what I get excited about, which is building a communication app and kind of like a social network to some extent on audio. And if you think about audio as the future, a place where we'll see more and more consumers using Google Home and, and now like Facebook Portal just announced. We have uh, yesterday Google Hub Home just announced. So like we're seeing more devices in the home. We're also seeing people adopt things like Bluetooth headsets and AirPods as well. Like there's now this this kind of hole that's starting to open up where people can start interacting with other people or, or rather technology through audio and voice and what types of big consumer plays can exist within that. We've had so many experiments, you know, anchor bumpers, like, you know, so many have tried. Some are doing well, haven't taken off, but I'm with you. Something's going to, something's going to take off in that space, whether it's social network or. And I think a lot of, a lot of the existing, I guess, audio voice players, they're still focused on the phone in the sense that you use your phone and your device that's in your pocket to communicate with your voice. Whereas now we're like, this is, if you think about how do you interact with your Facebook portal or with your Google home or with your AirPods in your ear? Like what does that change and how can you build experiences on top of that? I think it starts to dra- dramatically change the types of opportunities that we have today that we didn't have five years ago. So those are places I'm really excited about. And also from a, almost from a, a personal perspective, it's fun to follow these companies from behind the scenes and get their updates and, and hear what they're working on. And another company that's building tools for distributed teams actually came over and we just jammed on branding ideas and product ideas for like two hours. As someone who loves products, it's like super, super fun. Yeah. Yeah. What products are you loving? Like what's what's on your home screen that more people need to know about or what's something that you use every week that you love? Anything stand out? You know, one product to me that I think gets a lot of shade, but I think serves a lot of utility and I, I really love it is Goodreads. Oh yeah. Book social network. I want to see what people are reading. So I'm on there every day looking at statuses. It's my social network of choice. But I sort of have a request for products. I don't know if they can do it. I want a Pandora for books. I want not just sort of, you know, people tend to like this, but uh, I want the service to know what Moodaman, what what I'm looking to learn about, who I follow, and I want them to create stations because I'm always looking for great book recommendations and and I think that there's so much more that can be done there. Hmm. I'll tell you the last app that I installed on my phone was this app called Innova, which is like a they make a actual physical hardware sous vide machine. I don't have theirs. I bought a different one, but I've been like learning to cook sous vide and it's super fun. They've got actually a super interesting little like user generated content thing where people can upload their different recipes and you can figure out how to do all this stuff. So I've been doing that. The last one that I did before that was Udemy. I'm like the last person mm-hmm. on the planet to install Udemy, <laughs> but what are you I, learning? Yeah, I decided that I wanted to learn TensorFlow. I was like, you know, I, I think I probably can remember some of this math. Let me go like figure out how to build a magic machine that predicts the future because I've been like out of real coding for many years now. 
And so I was like, I don't know. How do you do this? Like, I downloaded the code, and I'm like, this isn't obvious. Let me go get some videos that show me how to do it. And so I've been working my way through that. The That's rust cool. is on all that math. Yeah. Dust it off. One more I'll add is uh, we give the plug to this app called Rhymeo for the freestyle rapper in you. It gives you words that you can rap to. It has beats you can share. I use it often to help my... Rhymeo. Yeah. That's dope. Similar to actually both those two last recommendations. Have you heard of Steezy? No. No. So Steezy, it's been around a little while now, maybe a couple of years. It's basically you to me for dancing. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, so, I did see that deal go by now that I think about it on the platform. That's a company? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. Udemy for dancing. They're building a dancing community. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It's there's some really cool of course like on if you go on YouTube and actually dance dancing is one of the most like popular kind of categories on YouTube. Both for probably consumption but also people learn how to dance. And I've done that on YouTube. I've like gone to YouTube and I've searched for like beginner's guide to popping or something. And it's like it's kind of hard actually to find good quality content. So they create they have instructors kind of like Peloton style, you know, they have personalities instructors that you can then subscribe wow. to and you can have a, a class that lasts i don't know multiple weeks where you're learning different dance yeah, moves and genres you know you're talking about like what are you excited about trends or whatever and i find that question to be really hard but i think one of the ways that i think about investing is like you know you wander through the world and there are just puzzles in the world and something that puzzles me that i, I thought about it when i saw that app was you know 20 or 30 years ago, exercise videos were huge. There's a massive yeah. market, right? My mom like, loved Tybo. She yeah. would be Tybo yeah. every morning. So, and you know, if you were a supermodel, you'd have an exercise video. That was just like a thing. Exercise videos were this big thing. And a, just a puzzle to me is like, why is there not a billion dollar exercise video company? It just seems like something that should exist. So, I, I think one of the ways that I think about investing is like, you're just wandering through the world and you're encountering these puzzles. And then the answer is not obvious. And then someone walks in the door with the answer because they've figured it out, right? And that's when you get excited and you do the deal. So if you've figured out the exercise video puzzle, I mean, maybe that's Peloton or these sorts of things. I mean, they certainly built a great business. But that's just, it, it's weird to me that that doesn't exist. Like, yeah. Puzzle came to me right now, not to be one track minded, but why isn't there you to me for freestyle rap? And why am I not? An <laughs> there you go. There you go. That could be you. Yes. Why Smart. am I not an instructor? Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Do you guys have anything to plug? Anything to, to close out with? I got I got nothing to plug. What do you got to plug? If you're looking to build out the future of proprietary rap advantages, <laughs> co- come to me. No, I'm just, I mean, Village Global, Token Daily. Yeah, I have my own podcast. Check Venture Stories by Village yeah. Global. Check it out. Excited nice. to be here. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming on. This is a good reunion. It's been four years since your last yeah. podcast. Probably. Wow. We'll schedule this for four years out yeah. for the next yeah. one and see where were they Where were they then. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a calendar, right? Cool. <laughs> Sounds Thanks, like guys. Thank you, guys. Hi, Marion. Thanks for joining us on Product Hunt Radio, and thanks to GE Ventures for making this possible. GE Ventures is investing in the new industrial revolution, and that means Marion works with all kinds of startups solving under-the-radar business problems. When you look at your past background in, in other venture roles and, and what you're doing at GE Ventures, how is it different? A lot of it is the same. It's really all about what are big market trends How do new startups with new business models, new technologies, new products, how do they create those trends? How do they take advantage of those trends to really get big footprint in market? So those pieces of startup venture investing, 100% the same. The part that's different is now I have the scale and weight of GE behind me. So where there is mutual fit between those companies and GE, we can really leverage GE commercial channels, GE research, GE 
overall capabilities to help those companies grow. Is there a particular space or industry that you're really excited about to invest in or at least explore? The big trend that we're focused on is digital capability disrupting traditional industry. So if you think about, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years, we've completely revolutionized commerce, media, communications, finance over a longer period of time. But if you look at more, let's call them physical or operational industries, they're barely touched by technology. You know, in the consumer space, we see this starting with all the new capabilities around automotive, right? Self-driving cars, ride sharing, real-time mapping and route planning. You can see all of that in the consumer space. But those capabilities intersecting into manufacturing, energy, and sort of larger mobility intersecting into healthcare, they're pretty nascent. They really haven't penetrated very far yet. So there's massive opportunities to bring that same capability into these more traditional industries. Thanks again, GE Ventures, for making this interview possible. GE Ventures invests in startups that develop transformational technologies to solve big problems. Visit ge.com slash ventures to learn more. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.